0: Hey, everybody, it's Megan Reardon Jarvis from Grief is My Side Hustle. First, I want to say thank you to Julianne Mansky Rolfson and the incredible Art of Losing podcast for filling in while I took a brief hiatus to do some book stuff. I have loved hearing these episodes, meeting her guests, and just having another really wise voice having conversations. Deep conversations about grief and loss. Julianne, thank you so much. So I'll be back next week. Grief is my side hustle is returning with Amy Morin, who you may know. She is a licensed clinical social worker, and she wrote the extraordinary book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. It's pretty much a movement now. Amy's TED Talk has been shared wildly. It's an incredibly powerful TED Talk. And you'll learn as um, you listen to this podcast that there is a deep grief story that has driven Amy's work and really the powerful supportive empire that she's created. So we can't wait to see you. And again, Julianne, thank you so much for filling in.
1: Welcome to the Art of Losing podcast. I'm your host, Julianne Mansky rollefson What happens when someone whose job is supporting other people's mental health is rocked by their own traumatic loss? In this very special episode, my guest and friend, Juliet Haas, shares both the personal and professional impact that her loss has had. I'm so grateful to Juliet for being open with her story that I know so many grievers will be able to relate to in different ways. So please enjoy this episode of The Art of Losing with Juliet Haas. very excited to welcome my guest, who is also my good friend, Juliette, to the show. Juliette, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Julianne. I've been so excited.
1: Juliette and I met because we're both therapists. And so that's kind of where I'd like to start is what brought you into the world of psychotherapy.
2: When I think back about my path to becoming a therapist, I always chuckle a little bit inside. It's not really what one would expect, um, especially because my own experience is with therapy prior to becoming a therapist were minimal and not great. (laughs) I had my first experience with therapy when I was about fifth grade, sixth grade, my parents were going through a separation and divorce that was pretty messy at the time. And my mom was in therapy. I think my dad was in therapy. I think they were even in couples counseling for a while. My sister was in therapy. My brothers were in therapy. And my mom was like, I think this is something that would be really helpful for you. I think you'd really like it. And so I went and I hated it. (laughs) I don't think I said a single word. and. I pretty much told my mom, like, that's not something I'm interested in doing. Please don't make me do that again. But every once in a while, she would then have the school guidance counselor call me out of class and check in with me. And I'm like, I know what you're doing. This isn't something I want to do. I don't want to talk. I was a really shy person. So just sitting one-on-one with a stranger was very uncomfortable for me. That first therapy
1: experience, what was hard about it? Was it just your shyness?
2: I think it was really just my shyness. I was the type of kid who didn't talk. When we were out in public and someone would ask me anything about myself, I would look at my sister and she would answer for me. It was just so uncomfortable, the idea of being one on one with someone. So I don't think it was really anything about the therapist themselves. And I do think I probably would have really enjoyed the time when I was that age. I couldn't get over that hurdle of, the spotlight is on me and i don't want that attention I'm not okay with that attention
1: so fast forward how yeah. did you end up in this group? Yeah.
2: yeah i took an ap psych class my senior year of high school and i fell in love with the subject material and i think part of that was also because i had a huge crush on my teacher so i was like front of the roads in class, like totally in awe over the whole experience. I think classes were like 50 minutes or 55 minutes. And the entire time I was just captivated. It was the material, but also the person who was explaining and guiding and teaching that material that I was like, oh, keep talking. I want to learn more. I want to learn more.
1: Thank you to that AP psych teacher because we need you in this field. And that's really a funny entry.
2: Yeah, Yeah. he was so captivating and just spoke about the material as if it was the most interesting thing ever. And in ways I personally think it is. I just got really drawn into mental health. And I did my major at UW-Madison in human development and family studies. And at the time, I was still really a little bit lost about what I wanted to do I was considering physical therapy because I also had a strong interest in the body and movement and did a bunch of physical therapy observation hours to apply to PT school. And I got to the point where I was about to do applications and it was like, this isn't it. This isn't what I want to do. I want to do something that has deeper long-term connections that also allows me to have creativity about how to really use the time with a client. So At the time, Madison was the only school that offered undergraduate curriculum and coursework in dance movement therapy. I was like, I think that kind of sounds like the thing for me. I'd grown up a dancer. Like I said, I was very interested in, in the body and movement and found that dance itself was really healing in my own journey and taking care of myself when I was growing up and felt like it was this really beautiful combination between what's happening in the mind and what's happening in the body and how do we express ourselves and how can we find other ways of expressing ourselves in addition to the words that we share. And so I started applying to dance movement therapy programs and also knew I wanted a program that offered a dual piece to it where I still got the mental health counseling degree behind it. And found myself living in Boston for six, seven years, you know, the first couple of years doing my grad program and then working in the field.
1: Yeah, it does sound like a beautiful marriage of your interest in the body and your interest in the mind Mm -hmm. and something that lets you build the longer-term relationships you are looking for. So you and I both know, having gone through training to become psychotherapists, that there really isn't much grief training at all. So most people, you graduate with an MSW, a Master's of Social Work, or a clinical counseling degree, you're not going to get much training on how to handle grief. And so I'm curious at this point in your career, both professionally and personally, let's start with professionally. What was your history with grief counseling? Did you do any grief counseling at that time?
2: I didn't get a ton of exposure to grief counseling in grad school. There was an internship that I had at an assisted living facility where I just got a little bit of exposure to grief. And I remember thinking that there has to be more around the process of managing our own emotions when we experience a death in our life. And thankfully I had a supervisor who was also a dance movement therapist, had her own practice and worked in elder care herself. And she really gave me more information and guidance on creating rituals around grief when a resident would die. And for a long time, that was what I had. It wasn't until really my own personal experience with grief that I then started to gain more skills professionally, going out and doing my own research, taking trainings, reading, 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 reading as much as I can to better understand what was happening for me. And then also what could be happening for a potential client one day.
1: Yes. And before we get into your personal story, I do want to pause because I know you've mentioned to me that you did... A grief and change group at a psych hospital yes. as part of your early work. And I'd love to hear you reflecting back, kind of knowing what you know now, what was that experience like?
2: Yeah. I wish I could go back to all of those clients that were in that group <laughs> and apologize. <laughs> responsibility for the fact that I knew really nothing. There was a grief and change group that ran, I think, every other Thursday in the psych hospital that I was working for. And with grief and change, we had the choice as clinicians. Did we want it to be more grief focused? Did we want it to be more change focused? And I think more often than not, I'd lean on the let's just talk about change. And every once in a while I would talk about grief. And I would use the stages of grief, which now I'm like, it's okay. That's what I knew then. I know differently. And really just talk through the stages almost as if it was that linear fashion. And I do remember having some standout clients that would challenge me on that. And these were clients who were living with grief. And I was young. I was a year into my career. I didn't know. And I remember not really feeling like I could support these clients.
1: Yes. And we can't blame young Juliet for that. There are still so many people who the stages of grief are all that they know And I'm talking about both grievers and therapists. And so I think for both of us, it's one of the reasons that we're so passionate about getting the word out about what actually happens in grief so that people can start looking at it differently than what we all have learned that might not be the most up-to-date, helpful information. Then I also want to talk a little bit about, before we get into your loss story, what was your personal experience with grief? Do you remember when you first heard about grief kind of as a child or growing up? was that culture around grief like for you?
2: It was really fuzzy. We lived far away from my grandparents, so I didn't really get to see them age. And I remember when my maternal grandma passed, my mom had been out in New York helping her while she was ill and was there with her when she had died. But I was so distant from it. And I witnessed my mom being in pain. It wasn't something that I felt like I really had deep empathy for. I could understand on a logical level why mom was sad and and why she was behaving the way that she was and why she wasn't as present. And yet I couldn't relate. And so I remember it feeling so distant and so fuzzy. And given that we were so far away from grandparents, we, at least I, And I I think most of my siblings, I think, I don't think we were involved in any of the rituals of awake or funeral for that as well. The first time I went to a funeral was actually my music teacher in high school. She had passed away of ovarian cancer my senior year. That was really the first time that I saw what it meant to gather and come together and mourn with other people. It was an overwhelming experience, overwhelming in the fact that it felt so powerful and so deeply sad. And the high school had offered counseling support if we needed it as students. And I'm sure and I hope that there were some students that took that and and was able to utilize that. I know I wasn't one of them. I think it just felt, well, why would I? Why would I need that? I remember thinking at the time, like, it's not that big of a deal, but like, it is a big deal when someone in our life and our circle dies.
1: Right. So, you had both the experience of someone far away dying, not really being involved in any sort of ritual around honoring that death, and also the experience that did kind of change your day to day when your teacher isn't there anymore and seeing the power of people gathering and what that can do of just bringing people together, but probably still not. Checking in with yourself or really understanding what was happening with you in terms of grief.
2: Definitely. And not knowing where to go with the emotions. My family, my parents have always been really great about having open communication. And I do remember there being the space if I wanted to talk about it or, or share what I was going through, I could. This was maybe part of me, maybe part of my like shyness still. That hurdle of expressing myself and being vulnerable felt so far away, felt nearly impossible that I remember just keeping it all inside of myself and probably pushing it down I mean, like, that doesn't even exist. And it is. Our culture makes it
1: very easy to push those things down. Most people in general are going to focus on, let's be positive. Let's have positive emotions. So I think it's really easy for us to push those things down until it's not. Mm-hmm. Right. Until we hit the point. And unfortunately, you know, both you and I have pretty clear befores and afters of what that looks like. And so I would love for you to start at whatever point it makes sense for you in terms of what your experience with loss has been.
2: Yeah, I've had one really intense experience with grief. And it is my oldest brother. He died in May of 2018 and he died by suicide. So it was a sudden and unexpected loss and it was shattering. Even to this day, I say that was the worst day of my life. And I feel confident that that will always be the worst day of my life. I'm deeply grateful that I was actually back in Wisconsin, back home. When it happened, I happened to have had a trip to visit my family to celebrate my birthday. The morning after I flew in was the morning that my mom got the phone call and she was concerned for his safety. And she had woken me up and said, will you talk to Ryan? I think he's going to hurt himself. And at the time I was working in a psych hospital and part of my role there was doing crisis intervention and checking if someone was at risk of harming and hurting themselves. And so I didn't even think I woke up, I sprung out of bed, I ran downstairs, I got on the phone and I, I took action. I took action as I knew to, as a clinician and as a therapist. And unfortunately I did what I could do and he still took the action that he took and he died that morning. And again, being able to be home for that was intense. I can look back on it now and feel so much gratitude that I was there. I look back on it now and and also feel this sense of, I think my brother knew the last time that I saw him alive was November of 2017. I had flown back for Thanksgiving and he wrote me a beautiful card and it's something that I have tucked away in this lockbox that I will treasure forever and he expressed how proud he was of me and expressed how happy he is about the life that I was creating in Boston and then he also said mom needs you at home I think you need I think you also maybe need to consider coming home Mom needs you. Wow. And I didn't really understand, of course. At first, I was like, that's kind of selfish. Like, I really like my life. But after he died, I just felt this strong embodied, like, this is what he meant. And so for me to be able to be there when it happened instead of having to fly in, I feel so grateful that I could provide the support that I think a lot of family members needed and knew how to navigate a little bit of the system when someone dies, and knew how to have some of those conversations about, especially with suicide loss, the aspect of it's not one thing that leads someone to suicide. It is multifactored. Lots of things come into consideration that we can't blame ourselves Right, really, that there wasn't anything that I or someone else was going to be able to do to stop or prevent this from happening in that moment when the crisis was there. It took a long time for me to absolve myself of guilt that went with that. And I, I had to do a lot of therapy in order for me to even continue being a therapist. When I did return back to work, which was far too early, I was completely burnt out and I'm looking back on it now. And like, I was having a trauma response and I stayed at the job for as long as I could and I left And I call it my retirement period. (laughs) I was 26 years old and I was taking time off. And I was fortunate to be in a situation where I could do that. I flew back home. I spent a good chunk of time with my parents and really was able to have time to think and reflect on what I needed and where to go next. And at that point in time, I knew that individual counseling Being in a psych center, being in higher level of care was not what I needed. And so I went back to working in elder care and an assisted living facility and really took my time to decide, like, am I capable and do I want to be a therapist and do therapy?
1: It's understandable that that would bring you to a point where you're not sure what's next, because I want to talk about how you were in that moment, both as someone who had the background? Who worked in these situations where people were at risk? But you were there as a sister, and you were there as a daughter. Mm-hmm. And before I go into more of that story, I actually would love to hear more about Ryan. Yeah. Um, so I would love for you to share what, yeah. what about Ryan's life?
2: Yeah. So Ryan um, was and is my my oldest brother. We were about seven and a half, eight years apart, and can I swear? Yes. Like any older brother, he was a giant pain in the ass. (laughs) He knew how to push anyone and everyone's buttons. In like a matter of seconds, he would just get in there and get you all riled up. And I think he loved doing that for pure entertainment. (laughs) He would play devil's advocate for things just to see the reaction that would happen. And then he would just laugh it off and be like, oh, you're getting too, you're overreacting. Like, this isn't that big of a deal. I'm just messing with you.
1: And in my experience, people who are able to know just how to push buttons are also very, very intelligent. I have a feeling that he was very smart. (laughs)
2: It's like too smart for his own good. Right. Yes. Yeah. Very, very smart. He used to, when I was really little, oh, I'll give you a dollar if you go get me a, my socks upstairs Or I'll give you a dollar if you make a sandwich. Like, I'll give you a dollar if you do this thing for me. And I would gladly do it. I'd be like, <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. One, I want a, do- a dollar, of course. <laughs> You're like, okay, I can help you. I can do this thing for you. I'm, I'm there for it. And after he died, I remember saying something, it must have been like shortly after. I'm like, wow, he owes me a lot of money that I'm never going to get.
1: (laughs) There is a running tab. Yeah.
2: Yeah. He had one of those personalities that when he was in the room, you know, he was in the room and he just loved so deeply a beautiful representation of unconditional love and what it means to be selfless. He was the type of person that not unlike a day like today where it's negative degrees outside. If he saw someone outside without a coat, he would literally take the coat off of his back and give it to them. There was many times that he'd come home and my mom would be like, wear your clothes. (laughs) And it was because he'd say, there was someone in the park that didn't have it. Wow. he, was always bringing people over to our house for holidays because they were friends or people that he had just met and said they didn't have anywhere to go. And he was like, so they need to be with us. They can't be alone. Yeah. Yeah. He was just that wonderful, but also a big pain in the
1: ass too. Absolutely. And (laughs) I wonder, as you're talking about him, it sounds like, you know, he had such a big heart and such big feelings for the world and for people And there can be a really tough side of that, right? When you feel things so deeply, right? If you see someone on the side of the road and give them your coat, you're a big hearted, big feeling person, but that can be a tough way to walk through the world too.
2: Yes. Yeah. I think he shouldered a lot and hid a lot that we, we didn't see. And every once in a while, the curtain would come down and we knew how much he was struggling with his own mental health. And that's something that, Really, since birth, I think my mom had expressed for him, she was always aware of how big he felt and how sad he would get and how much despair he would feel and how much helplessness he would feel. And it's hard in some ways to think back to the period of his life when he did die, because that was the period in his life where we could objectively say, we've never seen him so happy. Mm. He was engaged to be married. He had a, a baby boy and he had such community and friends and he was really doing the best that we'd ever witnessed him doing. And in ways I'm like, that's beautiful that that's the phase in life that he was in when he died. And in ways, I think it makes it that much harder for us on the outside yeah. to really deeply understand what was happening for him and how much pain he was in.
1: Right. Right. And now you're someone who unfortunately knows way too much and knows a lot about death by suicide. And as you said before, you can know all of the things and know that it is not your fault. It is not anyone's fault. There is nothing that could have been done to stop this. And yet when you're in that situation as a sister and a daughter,
2: it's hard to convince your mind that that's true. I felt so much responsibility immediately after his death. I felt like I was the one that was supposed to save him, which now I can say, why like have more compassion for myself back then and realize that my role wasn't to save him. I like to believe that I gave him a couple of moments of peace and glimmer. I can't believe I'm saying this, but my nickname with the family is Mookie. And So there's different renditions of that. Mookie, the Mook, Mook. And when I got on the phone that morning, he's like, oh, hi, Mook. And his voice was just so soft. And so I hold that near and dear to my heart that I I was able to provide him a moment with that in the last couple of moments of his life. And yet it took a long time to free myself from that responsibility that I was supposed to be able to fix this problem. And even on days when my grief is really present with me and wants to be seen and wants to be felt, I have a tendency of going back to that. And I'm much better at bringing myself away from it now where I'm able to more quickly move on from the, it wasn't my fault. I wasn't supposed to save him in that moment. Like you said, I was his sister, first and foremost. I wasn't his clinician or crisis management in that moment.
1: Yeah, it's hard to separate those two things. And I wonder how long it was even before you were able to do your own grief work, because I assume there were a lot of things going on. I'm sure there were trauma responses happening. There was the daughter who wanted to take care of your parents and probably think about them before you're thinking about yourself. When do you think you actually were able to look at your own grief?
2: It was months and months and months. I definitely have that tendency to care for others before I even take a moment to pause and think about myself. And during those first couple of weeks, I was only home for like two weeks. And then I went back to work, which if anyone is out there listening, like take more time. It was not enough time by any means. But I also felt like this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to like make sure everything is at least okay for me to be able to to fly back to Boston. And then I'm supposed to go back to my clients and my patients. Like I do remember when I was on my way back after my brother's death, feeling this sense of, all right, this patient's probably still there. And I need to make sure that we talk about this. And like already in that brain of like, I'm supposed to be helping these other people. I forgot that I needed to help myself first. I started working with a therapist she was also a dance movement therapist. So we really connected on that body piece within grief. And it really wasn't probably until I stopped working at the psych hospital. I started working with elder in the elder population again, that I finally felt like I had a moment to look at my grief. Because so much of it was first was just getting through the survival state and processing some of the trauma responses that I was having. And then deciding, do I stay in my job or not? (laughs) And then if I don't, what do I do? And then it finally got to this place of feeling like I'm more stable. I need to address the grief. I need to address the yearning and the sadness that's there. So I'd say in terms of like time wise, it probably was like nine, 10 months.
1: Yeah. And you and I have both seen through our work that Our minds can be so good at distracting us. And so I'm imagining you in this time where your brain's just thinking, what should I do for work? Should I go back to work? And that's a really great cognitive loop to be in, where you actually don't need to check in with yourself or your body. You know, your brain was trying to quickly process, but also probably trying to distract from what was there. And so I'd love to hear more about what it meant for you and the importance of working with someone who did get you into your body. Mm
2: -hmm. I was very resistant to doing any body work initially, which was very foreign to me. Like I said, I grew up as a dancer. I grew up as a runner. Movement was my form of expression and communication and where I felt safe. And then I went through this big event and my body no longer felt that way. I remember feeling so apprehensive to take a dance class or even go dancing with my friends. And my therapist was like, well, that's gonna be one of our goals is to get you to feel comfortable doing those things again. And we started off really slow. It was sitting on the floor and stretching on the floor. And in dance movement therapy, we utilize an intervention called mirroring, where you reflect back exactly what the client is doing. And it's not in a mimicky way or a way to make fun of the person, but a way to say, I'm here with you. I see you. I'm holding this space with you. Um, it's helping us get into that place of like body empathy and body wisdom. And we would have a ritual where I'd come in for session. And that's what we did until I felt safe enough to move to what's called like, authentic movement in dance movement therapy. And that, if you don't know, is a very powerful, vulnerable process. It's where the therapist is witnessing you move and you're not moving in any performative way, but your eyes are closed so that you can really tune in and listen to what information the body is providing you and move in this really expressive, releasing way. And it took a long period of time for me to feel comfortable doing that Part of it was that, again, you're really, really seeing me. My eyes are closed. You're holding the space. You're witnessing me. This feels so vulnerable. It makes me want to shut down. The other part of it was, am I really going to be safe in my body? If I start to tap into my body's wisdom and my body knowledge, will I be able to maintain regulation with that or will I just collapse? Will there be this like big emotional release, which we know as clinicians, if you feel safe enough and that happens, how cathartic and releasing that can be when you're on that side of being a client, there's so much trepidation and hesitation of, I can't go there because I'm never going to come back. I'm going to get stuck there.
1: Yes. Yes. And we share, I was a dancer growing up too, and find so much joy and wisdom in movement. And yet I know that I try to go from the neck up very often because we are scared of what connecting in that way is going to do. And I think you you articulated it so well of that fear of, am I going to be safe? And I know we both have had clients who have said, if I start crying, I'm never going to stop. And it's just that feeling of I can control it from this point, I can distract myself. But once I get into whatever it is for a client, whether it's getting into their body, whatever that step is, whether it's actually feeling the emotions that are there, there's a huge fear of it's too big. Mm -hmm. And it's going to overwhelm me to the point that I'm not going to be able to come back from it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I often, if that client is sharing that with me, we often talk about how can I allow you to feel more supported and more contained. Because if I tell them you will stop crying and you will come back from it, that's going right over their head in that moment. They're not really gonna believe that. There hasn't been evidence for them and their lived experience that tells them that. And so I'll work with clients to really explore what do they need to feel safe enough in our space and with me For that to happen,
1: were there any other brief practices you found between then and now that have been helpful to you?
2: Walking on the topic of movement, walking incredibly helpful. If I'm feeling any sort of way, you know, I go on the bike path here, which is thankfully near my home and my office, and I will just do a loop, walk up and down. And writing is actually the other one that has been incredibly helpful for me. I write to my brother. I will share with him what's been happening in my life since the last time I wrote to him. I will ask him to come to me and visit me. I'm still waiting for him to come to me in a dream, which he hasn't. Uh, But I know he's come to me in other ways when I really feel like he feels like I need it. Maybe not when I feel like I need it. (laughs) And just writing to him allows allows me to really still feel like he's here, right? We talk about that aspect of continuing bonds with clients and how do we stay in relationship to our important person who has died. And one of the things that I'll share with clients is that just because someone has died doesn't mean that the relationship has also died. We can really continue to grow in our relationship with this person. And sometimes that might even mean that our relationship evolves and becomes better because they're not responding back, right? And so being able to write to my brother has been a very grounding practice. And like I said, it allows me to feel like he's been with me through really the last couple of years where I've had some really immense positive change, starting my own practice, getting married, and things that I feel like I would have called him or things where he would have been with me for. This is my way of saying like, hey, you're here with me and that's.
1: I think that is one of the most surprising and beautiful things about grief and continuing bonds is actually having the experience of a relationship continuing past death because no one talks about that being a thing that can happen. And people experience it and relate to it in different ways. But I think that's so beautiful that you're sharing the way that this relationship doesn't end. You're not only looking at the past, you're bringing your brother and the relationship to the present moment. And I think that's a good segue into professionally what this has meant. The last thing we said about you professionally was that you weren't even sure if you wanted to be a therapist anymore. So what was that process like and what has changed in your practice now?
2: I felt so destabilized. When I was at that point of, do I continue being a clinician or do I find something else? I had just spent almost I think, seven years of school you know, in total to become a clinician. I was one year out of grad school at that point in time and didn't know how to navigate life really within the realm of grief, but also didn't know how was I going to think of something else if I didn't do therapy as a job. I'd spent so much time thinking about this, planning for this, even my identity being wrapped up into, oh, I'm a mental health therapist. And what do I feel internally when I say that? And so it felt incredibly destabilizing. Thankfully, the relationship that I had with that therapist was incredibly helpful in guiding me towards recognizing my strengths and actually recognizing that. I can maybe do something with my personal experience professionally. And we talk about finding meaning within grief. And I do remember a couple of years ago when I was going through this process, David Kessler was talking about finding meaning. And his book came out shortly thereafter on, on finding meaning. And I was like, I don't know what that means. I don't understand. How am I supposed to find meaning within this? And then I took a grief training. It was the Grief Summit. and. It clicked. I knew in my body, I was like, I'm going to become a grief therapist. That's going to be one of my areas of focus. And after that, I started to delve even more into some of the schools of thoughts that we're using today, like continuing bonds and attachment within relationships, the dual process model of bereavement, and really trying to understand what other beliefs and schools of thoughts are out there outside of what I knew back then, which was the stages of grief. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm so glad that that's the direction you decided to go in. I don't think that grief therapists necessarily need to have their own huge personal experience with grief. And I do think it can be helpful to clients to know that someone has been there. No grief story is going to look the same, but I think there's something helpful about having that mutual understanding. And I know that as you worked in the grief therapy space your purpose has become even more and more clear i'd love to get into some specifics about you know what you see your purpose in this field now
2: yeah when i started to return back to counseling i was seeing a variety of different populations for different reasons and i was getting some grief clients and I was like, okay, this is feeling pretty good and I can do this. And then I had a, a client whose father died by suicide and I had a moment where I was like, well, oh, can I actually do this? And sought consultation, of course, still in my own therapy to be able to process. And it just became more and more clear that supporting people through sudden deaths felt like the most embodied thing that I could do. And I felt the most present with those clients. Um, Not that I wasn't present for, for other clients, but I felt just like so in my body, present for myself, present for them. And really as the years have passed, I have found within the traumatic sudden death realm that I've also started to see clients who are also people who have experienced sibling loss not something by any means that i have like marketed myself for but the clients have found me and we talk about self disclosure as clinicians in grad school and with our our supervisors like when is it appropriate and how do we do it and of course it's not something that i vocalize right away with a client but i i do find that when i have a client who has experienced the death of their sibling whether it be sudden or you know something that is more expected that they feel relief when they hear the person that's sitting across from me knows what that's like. You and I have talked a little bit about sibling loss being something that's kind of the forgotten grief. There's not as many books on sibling loss as there is on the loss of a partner or the death of a parent or the death of a child. The resources and research that's out there, again, is really few and far between. And I think within sibling loss, there's this other level of feeling isolated and alone. People will ask, how are the parents doing if they've lost a child? People often forget, how are you doing with your brother or your sister or your sibling who has died? Yes. And
1: we've both experienced what it means to have someone sit with you and have a little bit more knowing than other people of what that experience is like. I know another thing that you and I share is that we've both been members of the dinner party tables. Yes. And I know that that was a really big part of my grief work. And I'm curious what it was like for you. So for those who don't know, the dinner party is mostly for 20s and 30s somethings who have lost important people in their life. And it's not therapist led. It's just peer support, again, of just having people who have had that life experience that not everyone in their 20s and 30s has had.
2: I'm so grateful for the dinner party. Before I found the dinner party, I was so deeply alone in my grief. I I kept thinking, I don't know anyone else who's lost a sibling. Surely there has to be other people. I, sh- I can't be the only one, but I don't know anyone else. And I don't know how to find them. And I need that. I need to know that there's other people who are grieving the loss of a sibling. And in finding the dinner party, I actually decided to host. I didn't really know what it was. I love the idea and concept of it. They were low on hosts in the Boston area. And I said, I want this community so badly that I will host and I you know told all of my dinner parties like I am a therapist but I'm not a therapist here we are all here in this together and I'm just so deeply grateful for my community we have been meeting since The fall of 2019, they used to come to my really tiny apartment in Cambridge. And there was like 12 of us that would gather in the living room and potluck style dinner. And now we meet virtually because we're all scattered kind of throughout the world now, actually. And we're still meeting four years later and to be able to have everyone in my group has had a sudden or stigmatized death so either suicides or overdoses and there's a portion of us who have also lost siblings within that And so to have people who understand what it's like to lose someone unexpectedly, to go through almost that traumatic aspect of they were there one day and then they weren't there the next. And then to have other people who are like, I get what it's like to be going on dates and someone asks you how many siblings you have and you have to pause and you get choked up because you don't know how to answer that question. And so to have a community to be able to talk through that with was one of the most meaningful processes, still is one of the most meaningful things within my grief experience.
1: And I'm just thinking about how lucky your clients are because first of all, you're doing the work as a therapist. You have your own personal outlet where you're not a therapist. You walk into the the dinner party table and you are a griever along with all of those people and also are getting a deeper experience of learning about what that's like for other people as well. And then as a therapist, you bring in that knowing that we talked about, the having experienced um, a sudden death, the having experienced sibling loss. And without those things, there's just no way that someone could really, truly understand. You can read all the books, you can listen to podcasts, and you're really not going to understand what that experience is like.
2: Yeah. I speak with that with my grief clients pretty frequently about how relationships will change after someone in our life dies and how in part those relationships change because other people don't necessarily know what to say or how to react or how to respond to them anymore. And while, like you said, I don't also think that you have to have your own grief experience to be a grief clinician or grief therapist. I think it adds this extra bonus though to it, where you can be able to relate without obviously making the focus about you. It's still about the client, but for their client to have the aspect of there's someone else sitting here with me that understands on this true level, what it's like to be yearning for someone in your life in this way, what it's like to see relationships around you change, what it's like to not have an important person at some of these really big life events that we assume or think we're going to have them there with us for a long term especially within sibling, right? Sibling relationship. So many of us are under that impression that our sibling is going to be with us for the entirety of our life.
1: Yeah, it's an unnatural, it's an out of order death, as they say, right? You don't assume that siblings are gonna die before your parents, before the next generation. And it is just this assumption that we have that those people are always gonna be with us and um, a very, very different relationship than any other relationship we have in our lives. Mm -hmm. I know that the people that I have met who do this work in the grief world, like you, are people who I immediately feel close to because we have that bond. And what is true is most of the people I find doing this work did come to it through their own experience. And you know that I don't like to say, let's put a rainbow on it. Let's let's look at finding meaning. Let's look at that post-traumatic growth. And yet it's there. It's there. And that, you know, you have found meaning in your work through this. And now those personal and professional pieces of your life have come together in some really beautiful ways. So as we wrap up, I'd love to hear more about your current practice and, and plans that you have for the future.
2: Yeah, very excited to share that with you. you. And so I currently practice in Milwaukee, just down the road from from your office, which is so nice and wonderful and fun. I'm still licensed out of Massachusetts, so I do see clients out there as well. And my practice is a combination of clients coming in for grief, counseling, for trauma, uh, whether it be a traumatic death or other trauma and anxiety and stress. I really enjoy the balance of those sort of three different areas of focus within my practice. And I often find that even if there isn't a a death, we're seeing grief in other forms, right? Non-death, loss, does still have a place for grieving, that disenfranchised grief, which as grief clinicians, we we are familiar with, but I think often people who aren't well aware of the different types of grief don't really consider those things to be grief. And so in addition to my practice this year, I'll be starting doing an intensive training on disenfranchised grief for different counties within the state of Wisconsin. In addition to that, I am a certified laughter yoga leader and tell me I,
1: about what laughter yoga is. What is laughter yeah, so yoga?
2: Laughter yoga is it's so much fun. It is a unique movement experience where you combine different laughing exercises paired with yoga breathing techniques to stimulate voluntary laughter. It relies on the fact that we don't actually need humor, or comedy or jokes to laugh and to seek the benefits and reap the benefits of laughter, but that we can voluntarily stimulate laughter and get all of the amazing benefits of laughter. So it's this combination of like playfulness, movement, breath work, silliness, that you can leave a laughter yoga session feeling complete joy and almost this euphoric feeling because we've just stimulated so much oxygen in our body. And it's it's wonderful if you're looking to try something new and try something a little kind of out of the norm, tap into that childlike playfulness, I truly suggest engaging in laughter yoga. And that's something that I'll be offering in the Milwaukee area this year as well.
1: I'm so excited to try it. And I am so happy for Milwaukee and very selfishly for me that you're here. I remember when we first met, I would say I didn't, I don't know that you were 100% sold on Milwaukee. So one of the first things I did was to try to tell you, All the things that I love about Milwaukee, because as our listeners now know how special you are, you know, I knew immediately and I knew we had to keep you here. And I know that you and I have big plans for what our practices can look like in the future in Milwaukee and just all the people that we want to reach who are grieving and who are going through all different sorts of things, as you mentioned, you know, it's not just not just death griefs, all of the going back to grief and change, you know, all change has a bit of loss. But I am just so grateful for you and for you sharing your story today and for your friendship and um, for the hopes of all that we're going to be able to accomplish together.
2: Thank you. It's been wonderful sharing more about my story with you, Julianne. And I really appreciate you asking me to come onto the podcast. And I, too, am I'm very excited for our future plans within the grief world of Milwaukee. And for those of you that are wondering, yes, Milwaukee is growing on me. I'm liking it more and more. It's taking Yay! Some time. Yay! My plans are working. And yes. for those
1: people who do want to connect with you, where is the best place to do that?
2: Yeah, so they can go to my website, which is mindfulcounselingandwellness.com. And this year I've started an Instagram account to be able to provide more information on grief, on trauma, on stress, on laughter yoga, on the mind body connection, all that fun stuff and they can go to my Instagram handle which is mindful counseling and wellness.
1: Wonderful. And we will include all of those links in the show notes, so we will have those for you. Thank you again, Julia. I really appreciate your time and I loved this conversation.
0: Thank
2: you. Me too. If you
1: ever have the chance to work with Juliet, I encourage you to do it. She is an absolute gem, and I so admire the way she's using her gifts and her personal experience with grief to help others. Make sure to connect with her on Instagram, and you can follow me there too, at Julianne Rolovson. As Megan mentioned, this is the last of my episodes to air on the Grief is My Side Hustle platform. So if you're listening there, please also subscribe to the Art of Losing podcast so you won't miss future episodes. Thanks again to Jakob Ballersen for this theme music and to you for listening.